incredible Easter Sunday with incredible weather. Whoa, what a great weekend. Thank you, Father. It's amazing, by the way, some of the things we take for granted. Oh, wait a minute. You know what? Before I do this, I want you to watch a video, and I want you to listen to what these people have to say about the meaning of Easter. Because when I heard it the first time, I thought, you've got to be kidding me. I thought everybody understood Easter, but not these people. Let's watch it. Do you celebrate Easter? Uh, yeah, a little bit. Do you celebrate Easter? No. Do I celebrate Easter? No. Do you celebrate Easter? Yes, I do. What's so important about Easter? What's it all about? I believe it's because the day of Jesus was born, or it has to do with God. Why do you celebrate Easter? Uh, it's a fun family time. Is there any significance to why we recognize it as a holiday? I don't recognize it as a holiday due to my religious beliefs. Do you celebrate Easter? Mm, not really. I just know that you pick up Easter eggs on Easter. Why do you celebrate Easter? Because uh, my parents did. What do you think the significance of Easter is? What's it all about? Uh, it's about uh, Christ. Uh, the Christ of... Uh... Why do you celebrate Easter? Because that's how I grew up. What's it all about? I don't know. What's the significance of Easter? Um, I really don't know. Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Yeah. No, that's the historical meaning of the holiday. Oh, really? That's it. Learn something new every day, don't you? You believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Yes. Do you know that's the significance of the holiday? I do now. I know most people celebrated about Jesus, but I'm not religious, so. They say Jesus rose from the dead, you know what I'm saying? But, you know, I don't, I don't know. It's uh, something of Jesus, I don't know. Well, I think it has something to do with, like, God or I don't really know that much, but... Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Is that... I really don't know what I believe. Huh. You know, I've been a, uh, a Jesus follower for over 40 years. And so it just makes sense to me that people know that Easter's all about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it floors me when I find people who don't know the significance of this particular holiday. And it is still, by the way, the most important celebration in the church year, okay? I know Christmas gets more attention. Christmas has all the, the better decorations and the longer time and all the other stuff that goes along with it. But actually, Easter is the focal point of the church year and of the Christian life. It's been that way from the very beginning. Easter is what it's all about. That we shouldn't, by the way, be surprised that some people didn't quite grasp the concept of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's been going on a long time. Even in the early church, there were some people who didn't quite get the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, that's why Paul had to write this passage right here. He's writing to the church and says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. That's how important the resurrection of Jesus is all about. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him from the dead if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. The resurrection is that central to what we believe. Your faith is futile. 
and you're still in your sins, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the center point of all of Christianity. It is the focal point of all history. Everything built up to that moment, everything looks back at that moment. The resurrection of Jesus is that central. So that's why we're calling this sermon today, this message, it's called this. He is risen. Or is he? Hmm. See, there are still some people who don't believe it. We say that we believe in the resurrection, but um, why do you believe in the resurrection? Now, that's the question. We're going to explore that this morning. First of all, I want to start right here. I'm going to give you the proof, the proof that Jesus rose from the dead, okay? Are you ready? Here is the proof that we have that Jesus rose from the dead, and the answer is this. There is none. None whatsoever. There is no proof. Why is that? I mean, if this is so central, why is it that that God wouldn't provide some sort of proof? For instance, our Father created the world. He could easily have the stars, you know, every Easter morning or the night before Easter or the Easter evening spell out, He is risen. He is risen indeed. He could do that. I think a lot of people would go, wow, something's going on. But He doesn't do anything like that. Why not? Why not? Well... First of all, because um, even if he did something like that, there'd still be a lot of people that wouldn't believe in him because there are some people who just don't want to believe. They don't want to believe. They're always going to come up with another explanation. They would say it's mass hallucination. They just don't want to believe in anything greater than themselves. But there's a whole other reason that God doesn't provide that kind of proof. It's because of this. Our Father is looking for people who will trust him by faith. Now we're into your sermon notes. Some people like to take these notes. It keeps their mind on, or they scribble on the notes. I don't know what they do with them. But uh, if you're one of those people that likes to really write something down, here it is. Our Father is looking for people who will trust Him by faith. They will trust Him because He says so. See, if it's proof, I don't need to trust God, do I? Proof means I trust myself. I trust my intellect. I trust my ability to understand. That's what I'm trusting in. God says, I don't want you to trust in you. I want you to trust in me. So I'm not going to give you proof. You're just going to have to trust. See, proof is not a choice. Proof is proof. Faith, that's a choice. Our Father is looking for people who will choose Him, not because they have to, but because they choose to. This is what the Bible says. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. In other words, a right way of living, a way of becoming right. And it's revealed in the Bible, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. In other words, God says, this is the way that you get right. This is the way I look at you and see you as right. Here's the way that you become a right person. It's not by proof. It's by your faith. From the beginning to the end, will you take me at my word, is what the Father says. Those are the people he's looking for. Not only is he looking for people like that, he also promises this. In the Bible, our Father blesses people who will trust Him by faith. There's a special blessing for people who will just take Him at His word. After His resurrection, Jesus Christ appeared to lots of His disciples, and sometimes we're all together, sometimes individually. We'll talk about that as the morning goes on. There was one disciple, however, who was consistently 
absent. I don't know what he was doing or where he was, but he wasn't there every time Jesus showed up to the disciples. What's that disciple's name? Do you remember? Thomas. The disciple Thomas didn't, he wasn't there. And all the, all the other disciples said, Thomas, we've seen him, we've seen him, we've seen him. Would Thomas have faith? No. What Thomas said was what? Uh-uh-uh. No way. You're not fooling me. I have to see it. I want proof. And Jesus, in his mercy and grace, one day gives him proof. Shows up when Thomas is there. And he looks at Thomas and says, look, here I am. Here's the holes in my hand. Here's the hole in my side. Now what do you say? And Thomas falls down on his knees and he says, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus said this. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And you know who he's talking about? He's talking about you. He's talking about you. He's talking about all the people, you included, who have never, ever laid eyes on the person of Jesus Christ, have never had the opportunity to put your hand in his side or the holes in his hands, and yet you believe. He says there is a special blessing for people just like you because you take God at his word. Peter said basically the same thing a little bit later on in one of the letters that he wrote when he said this, though you have not seen him, meaning Jesus, you love him. He's talking to a whole church. Very few people have actually seen Jesus at this point in time. When Peter's writing 20, 30 years later, nobody's really seen Jesus except a few. And yet the church is huge. It's thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Most who have accepted Jesus Christ by faith. Though you have not seen him, he says, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. There is a special blessing for people who will take God at his word. Now, before we continue, I I think we just need to talk a bit about the difference between this right here. The difference between proof and evidence. So you talk back to me. How would you say that? What's the difference between proof and evidence? All right, your answer. As you're thinking about this, all right, what's the difference between proof and evidence? How would you describe it? What? Evidence points to truth, right? But doesn't necessarily prove it. It just kind of points to it. Okay. What's the difference between proof and evidence? Physical. Could be physical. Good. What else? How would you describe the difference between proof and evidence? How about this? You believe, okay, proof is something that is going to be the same to almost any reasonable individual. Okay, now, there will be unreasonable people, but most reasonable people will accept proof. Evidence, however, uh, requires a choice. Evidence requires an interpretation. For instance, let's say, um, oh, let's say right here. I have, how many books do I have in my hand? That's kind of proof, isn't it? I mean, please, don't, don't give me the, the Cartesian philosophy that says you really can't tell if they're there or not. You know, Descartes, the, the cogito, ergo sum, I think, therefore I'm... You're talking to a philosophy major, okay, so don't go there. <laughs> They've got four books, right? Good. That's proof. Now, let's put them over here. Drop one in there, two in there, three in there, four in there. How many books are in there? But can you prove that? 
Is there evidence to suggest there's four books over there? Yeah, because you watched me do it. But for all we know, there were a couple more books in there in the first place, right? Or maybe there was somebody in there right now who's stolen one of those books and you can't see them. So you can't really prove there are four books, but you have evidence that there are four books, right? Do you understand the difference? Proof is something that any reasonable person will go, yep. Evidence goes, yeah, I think so, but you know what? I've got to make a choice. Now, that's important because there is absolutely no proof that Jesus rose from the dead. None. But man, there's lots of evidence. And that's what I'm going to give you this morning. I want you to walk out of here today going, how about that? If anybody says, why do you believe that? How do you know? You can say, you know, I I believe it. I just trust it. But let me give you the evidence that Jesus actually rose from the dead. You ready? Here we go. The first evidence that we have of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is this. It's called prophecy. The Old Testament was written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus Christ walked this planet. And yet, the Old Testament, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus, predicts accurately that he would die, the manner of his death, take a look at Psalm 22 sometime, what it was like to be crucified long before crucifixion ever came into this world, long before the Romans ever thought it up. It is described in Psalm 22, hundreds of years before anybody even thought of crucifixion. It's described in Psalm 22. Some of you right now are going, I better look at Psalm 22. Go ahead, that's all right. And it was predicted that Jesus would rise from the dead. So much so, in fact, that uh, when he did rise after his resurrection... And he showed himself to lots of different people. Uh, he came across two disciples. They were one of the 12, but they were still his disciples. And, and of course, after his resurrection, it still didn't... Be, before people saw him, all they saw was the empty tomb. And they hadn't really quite bought into the concept that he'd risen from the dead. If you read the scriptures and you read the accounts, the disciples, when they saw the empty tomb, didn't go, He's alive! They went, what in the world is going on here? They didn't know until they saw him. He comes upon these two disciples who were walking on the road to Emmaus. And, and he, they don't recognize him. Somehow he's able to mask what he looks like or whatever, and they don't quite recognize him. And he's talking to them, and he says, what's going on? And they're going, oh, you've got to be kidding me. How can you be here and you don't even know what's happening? You know, Jesus was crucified, and now some of our, our, our women folk have gone crazy. They think he's alive, and we don't know what to believe. Then we read this. He said to them, meaning Jesus spoke to these two men and said, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself for hundreds of years. The Bible predicted that Jesus would rise from the dead, and he did just exactly the way they said he would. Proof? No. Evidence? Okay. How about the second part of evidence? The empty tomb. The empty tomb. Now, you have to understand that everybody believes that the tomb was empty. All of history tells us that the tomb was empty. This is what the Bible says. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of Jesus. The tomb was empty. And you can be sure of that. How could you be sure that the fact that the tomb was empty? What if the tomb wasn't empty? What if his body was still there? What would the Jewish leaders have done? 
Come on, think. Use that noggin of yours. What would the Jewish leaders have done if his body was still in the tomb? And suddenly people started saying, he's alive, he's alive. What would the Jewish leaders have done? They would have brought the body out and said, you mean this guy? But they didn't. They couldn't. The tomb was empty. Instead, they invent this great story about uh, how the guards fell asleep. They paid them a lot of money for this story. And then, then the disciples came along and stole the body. Can you think of two reasons right now? I'm making you think this morning, but that's okay. You need to. Can you think of two reasons why that story is pretty ridiculous? And yet it is the story that circulated. We have that in actually external writings, not just Christian writings, outside writings, that Jesus' disciples stole the body while the guards were sleeping. Two reasons why that doesn't make any sense. Carson, I'm going to give everybody about a second and a half, and then we'll come to you. Okay, ready? Anybody got a reason? Give me one reason why it doesn't make any sense. Yes, sir. If the guards fell asleep, the elite Roman guard, they would have been killed. It's dereliction of duty. Absolutely. It's a dumb thing to say. Now, it does say that the chief priest paid them a lot of money and they were going to fix it with Pilate, but who's going to believe that the guards fell asleep? But there's another one, even better than that. You got the first one. What's the second one? Stone was too heavy? Okay, that's what? If they were asleep, how did they know what happened? We were asleep, and the guard, and Jesus' disciples came and took the. How do you know? If you were sleeping, how do you know? Maybe he rose from the dead while you were sleeping. It makes no sense. It's the dumbest thing in the world to think that a ragtag group of disciples could overpower the guards or could sneak in and roll the stone away and drag the body out while the guards were sleeping. Come on. But it's the best they could do because here is what's true. That tomb was empty. Somehow, you got to explain that one. Guarded by the elite Romans, and it's empty. Next evidence, ready? How about this? We have slightly different eyewitness accounts. There are lots of eyewitness accounts, lots of people who saw this, lots of people who met Jesus and are willing to testify. And what's wonderful about it is all of their accounts are a little different, and I'll tell you why that's good in just a moment. This is what Peter said. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The disciples, Peter and others, saw him. They saw him. They were eyewitnesses. And all the accounts are a little different. And you should go, yes. Because that means it's true. Let's say that uh, there was a little car accident right here in the corner. And there were 10 witnesses that saw that accident. The police came to the first one and um, they said, what happened? And the guy said, well, light turned red, car honked. A woman screamed, brakes squealed. Glass broke, then the metal crunched. Two men got out and started yelling. Okay, thanks. They go to the next witness and said, what happened? He said, well, the light turned red, car honked, woman screamed, brakes squealed, glass broke, metal crunched, two men got out and started yelling. They went to the third one who said, well, the light turned red, car honked, woman screamed, brakes squealed, glass broke, metal crunched, two men got out and started yelling. If they went to all ten witnesses and every single of those witnesses said, the light turned red, the car honked, the woman screamed, brakes squealed, glass broke, metal crunched, two men got out and started yelling, what do you think the police would do? You're making this up. Okay. <laughs> Nobody, no ten witnesses are going to give me the same story. 
And yet, if you were writing this, you probably want to make sure it all came out the same. But there are so many slight differences. Now, this may bother you, but it shouldn't bother you. It should do the exact opposite. This is what tells us that these things were true. Some of the witnesses say there was one angel. Some of the witnesses said there were two angels. Some of the witnesses said there were no angels. One witness said there were two young men. One witness said it was before dark. A few of the witnesses said it was just after sunrise. Jesus appears to the women in some. Jesus appears to Mary in one. Jesus doesn't appear to any of the women in one. They run and tell the disciples. In one account, they don't run and tell the disciples. They're too afraid. Little bitty teeny tiny changes from all these different witnesses just exactly as if you had 10 people witnessing an accident, you would get 10 slightly different accounts. Because that's what witnesses do. And the Bible wasn't there to clean up all of this stuff. This Bible was written in the raw with the words of these witnesses led by God. Little differences. But you know what they all agree in? Tomb was empty. And eventually they saw Jesus. I mean, that's it. That's what we, that's what we cling to. That we know. At that little crash, we would be able to say, yep, two cars collided. We saw it. We know it. But the little details... Eh, we're going to get those a little differently because we all see it that way. But I'm going to give you right now the, the, the best evidence that we have, the best evidence that Jesus is alive. And it's this. The dramatic changes in the disciples, in James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, and in Paul. Incredible changes. Do you remember what they were like before the resurrection of Jesus? The disciples were cowards, liars. Peter lied to save his own skin. When Jesus is being arrested, and before he's even crucified, when they arrest him, he's, Peter's kind of hanging out outside because he wants to see what's going on, and, and somebody says, hey, you're, you're one of those disciples, and Peter said, no, not me. Just like Jesus predicted, three times somebody said, you're one of the disciples, and three times Peter, the great Peter, lied through his teeth to save his own skin. The disciples fled. It was only some of the women who stuck around, and maybe one disciple, to see to the very end. They were cowards. James, his half-brother. Jesus had half-brothers. You can read about them in the New Testament if you want to. We don't have time to go through all the names, but James was one of them. James thought Jesus was crazy. He didn't follow Jesus at all. As a matter of fact, there's an indication in the scripture that there was a time that James, along with his mother, Mary, went to collect Jesus. They heard all the crazy things he was saying, and they went to collect him. They went to grab him and say, Jesus, you've had a stroke. I don't know what's going on here, but you're saying crazy stuff. Come home with us. And Jesus wouldn't do it. And yet, just after the resurrection... James, the half-brother of Jesus, becomes the leader of the church. Not just a follower of Jesus Christ, a leader of the church. And you can read about that in the book of Acts. We're out to, to Acts chapter 15. James, who thought he was crazy, now calls him Lord. 
And Paul, Paul was on the fast track to success. Paul was a man who, who was gaining a lot of notoriety within the Jewish world because he was actually out there arresting Christians. And then one day, he stops arresting them and he starts preaching Jesus Christ. An incredible change. A dramatic change. That's what they were like before. Let me tell you how much they changed already. Are you ready to go through this? It's amazing. First of all, they changed how they worshiped. They worshiped before in the temple. They worshiped through animal sacrifices. That was the Jewish form of worship. All of that disappeared, just like that overnight. All of these great Jews, these learned Jews, these trusted Jews, Paul, who was an absolute leader of the Jewish community, gave it all up, just like that overnight. No more animal sacrifices. No more priests and Levites. No more temple. Simple act of communion. Taking the cup and eating the bread and remembering Jesus. And they changed like that. But they also changed when they're going to worship. The Sabbath day is actually Friday night to Saturday night. That's the Sabbath. If you want a Sabbath day, it's Saturday. Sunday was a work day for them. Now, see, that's a little hard for you to believe because for us, Sunday is not. It's part of the weekend, even though it's called the first day of the week. For them, Sunday was a work day. That's when you went back to work. And suddenly they stopped worshiping on Saturday and they started worshiping on the first day of week, Sunday morning, just like that. These Jews who'd been steeped in this tradition all of their lives suddenly gave up Saturday worship for Sunday worship because Jesus rose on a Sunday. They, they gave up and changed the rules that they followed. The rules that they used to follow had 613 mitzvahs. You thought there were 10 commandments. We learned last year there were actually 613 in the Old Testament. And they all went away. They took one of the most important ones called circumcision. That that was the way that you, that you showed your devotion to God through circumcision. They said, throw that out. We'll never do that again. And replaced it with baptism. And then they gave everybody two, two rules. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor. These men grew up with 613 laws and threw them away like that. They changed the message they were preaching. They used used to become a Jew. They had to obey the law of Moses and, and get ready for the Messiah. And that's what they preached. That's what they told people. Now suddenly they're preaching Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, repentance, and trusting in the name of Jesus. They changed their message like that. And they changed what they lived and died for. Before the resurrection, they lived for fishing and for power and for money and for status. And suddenly they lived for Jesus and his message. And they were all willing to die. Peter had to lie just to save his skin. And then all of a sudden, he's willing to die. You ready for this? Let me tell you how the disciples died. James, the brother of John, was put to death by the sword. We know that. The scripture tells us. Philip was also martyred. He was flogged, imprisoned, and crucified. Matthew 
was killed with a uh, pike fitted on an axe head and shoved up into him. James, the half-brother of Jesus, the one who now accepted the lordship of Jesus, was clubbed to death in Jerusalem. Matthias was stoned and then beheaded. Andrew was crucified in an X-shaped cross. Mark was torn to pieces by a mob in Alexandria. Peter was crucified upside down. Jude was crucified. Bartholomew was crucified. Thomas was killed by a spear in India. Luke, the great doctor, who wasn't an eyewitness, but he wrote a lot of it down and did a lot of investigation, also died for Jesus. All of them. The only disciple, actually, that lived to a ripe old age was John. All the rest died for Jesus Christ. Now, did they change all of these things? Were they willing to die because of an empty tomb? Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, again, if you go back and you look at the accounts, the empty tomb did not change their mind. They were just as frightened as they ever were when the tomb was empty. They just didn't know what had happened. They changed their minds because they all met Jesus. This is what Paul says. For I received, for I received and I passed on to you as the first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, his half-brother, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me as to one abnormally born. In other words, Paul said, I saw him. Here's years later. Paul was on the road to Damascus to arrest more Christians when Jesus appears risen alive it's the greatest oops moment in all of history when jesus says to paul why are you persecuting me and paul says who are you and jesus says i'm jesus i'm alive and paul goes oops and turned just like that and began to preach the risen Lord Jesus. I want you to remember two things about all these men that we've talked about. Ready? Here we go. First of all, they knew if the resurrection was a lie or not. They knew it. These are men who claimed. They died because they claimed they met him. They knew. You don't really know and I don't really know. Most of their followers didn't know because they never saw him. These men knew whether the resurrection was true or not. And the second thing is this. They each had absolutely nothing to gain and everything to lose by proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. How many of them became rich because they became Christians? How many of them rose to power? How many of them got all that they were looking for because suddenly they're proclaiming Jesus Christ risen from the dead? None of them. They died horrible deaths. They were persecuted their whole lives. They lost everything. Would you do that for a lie? There might be one or two crazy people out there that would want to perpetuate the lie and be willing to die. But all 12 of them, 13 of them, 14 of these men, the 11 apostles plus others, uh-uh. 
Don't you think at least one of them would have said, I was kidding! <laughs> don't, don't, don't kill me. It was just a hoax. Don't you think that the chief priest would have taken that person right now and paraded them up and down and said, see, we told you, we told you, we told you. Not one. Would you die for a lie? Would you give your life for something you knew wasn't true? Of course you wouldn't. You're not crazy and neither were they. They give up everything. Not because the tomb is empty. They give up everything because they met Jesus Christ alive. That's why Paul put it this way. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. You can't know a dead guy, okay? Understand that. Nobody here can really claim to know Abraham Lincoln. Got it? You can know about him, but you can't know him. Paul said, I know this guy. He's not dead. For whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish. We've talked about that word. We won't go into it this morning. That I may again, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ. You can't know a dead guy. He didn't say I want to know about him. There's a clear way in the Greek to do that. And he didn't say that. You know people who are alive. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection of the dead. Who wants that kind of life? I want to know Christ so that I can get all of my problems taken care of and be happy and healthy and become rich. Paul said, no. When you meet the risen Lord Jesus Christ and it changes everything in your life, you want to know him. And if it means you suffer along with him, then you suffer. Because you know that in this life, once this life is done, there is something far more that is waiting for us. Absolutely. So here we're going to close with two personal questions. We're going to get personal now, okay? I've given you some of the evidence. There's more. But I mean, let's face it, you can only handle so much, right? This next fall, we're going to be getting some classes on just the evidence for the Word of God being true and for the fact that Jesus Christ... You want a little evidence on how we know that Jesus Christ was a real historical figure? Are you ready? How many of you believe in, um, that there was a, a Caesar, a leader of Rome, called Tiberius Caesar, right? You know that, right? Does anybody doubt his existence? We have extra writings, not Christian writings, about Tiberius Caesar being the emperor of Rome. And we have nine extra sources, in other words, sources outside of the Bible, that talk about Caesar, Tiberius Caesar. We have ten extra-biblical sources that talk about the existence of Jesus Christ. Isn't it funny that some people have no problem believing in Tiberius Caesar, and yet they struggle with Jesus, and yet we have more extra-biblical writings about Jesus than about the Caesar who was in power in the time of Jesus. There's so much evidence that what we believe is true. We want to teach you all this stuff this next fall in the classes we're going to give you. Just so that you can know, we're not making this stuff up. But now, as we close with a couple of personal questions, here it is, ready? First one, what's the evidence that you believe in the resurrection? I'll give you some. You're here. 
Now, now, some of you may be here and you don't really quite believe. You're just kind of investigating. You are so welcome here. I would love to talk with you even more. I'll buy you coffee. Let's discuss it. It'll be great. I'm not going to argue into the kingdom. It doesn't work that way. But some of you aren't quite sure. You're just here to find out. Most of you, however, the evidence that you believe in the resurrection of Jesus is you took your time on a Sunday morning, and it's beautiful out there, to come down here for worship service. That's great. But you know what? That's really not going to change you. Because the devil also believes in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, doesn't he? He was an eyewitness too. And it hasn't changed him much. So the second personal question is this. What is the evidence that you have met the risen Lord Jesus? And that's a completely different thing. See, here's where the rubber meets the road. He is still alive and he still meets people, the people who are willing to speak with him, to receive him, to talk with him, to believe, he meets, right? That's the biggest evidence that someone has actually met him is this. We don't live for this world anymore. When you have met the risen Lord Jesus Christ, you don't longer live the way other people live because you know that the priorities are different. The values are different. What's important to this world is no longer important like it was. New things become important. That's why scripture says this, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let me give you a little personal testimony, and we're done. I met this man over 40 years ago. I knew about him. I was one of those people, because I grew in a, in a church, in a family that, that wasn't Christian at all, but I was one of those people that, that we, we did Easter because of the eggs and the candy, and I don't even know if I really quite got the resurrection of Jesus. Through Linda, who is now my wife, and her family, I began to attend a church, and I began to hear about this Jesus Christ, and they talked about him like he was alive, you know, like, that he was right there in the room. I thought it was weird. But the more they talked, the more I, I, I just felt... I need to meet this guy. Linda, on one Sunday morning, gave her life to the Lord. And a couple days later, she and I went to talk with the pastor. And while I talked with the pastor, we went into the sanctuary. It was a Monday or Tuesday, so there's nobody in there, just the three of us. And I met him. I I can't... I met him. (laughs) I can't prove that to you. There were no angels. I just met him. He was alive. I started a relationship with him, and and, and he forgave my sins, and and he filled me with his spirit, and he said, let's walk together. I had no idea what he meant. I was 16 years old. But I met him. And what he did is he changed what I lived for. Oh, I still love the things of the world. I mean, let's face it. Things of the world are great. I don't live for them anymore. I was going to be a doctor, make tons of money. Here I am, not making tons of money, (laughs) but loving what I do. I changed what I'm willing to live for. I changed what I'm willing to die for. And he changed me. Little by little, 
I'm becoming the person he always wanted me to be. I'm not there yet, guys, but I'm on the road. Not because I believed in his resurrection. Not because I believed the tomb was empty. I met him. He's alive. And we began to walk together. And we're still doing it. I can't prove any of this to you. I can't prove my testimony. I can't prove that Jesus existed. I can't prove he died. I can't prove he rose from the dead. All I can do is give you the evidence. And you've got to make up your own mind. Which we're going to give you time to do right now. We usually close our service in a time called um, Selah. And Selah is a meditation term. It just means think about it. In a moment, we're just going to put up a, a PowerPoint that says, He is risen, and there's a great song called All I Once Held Dear. It's just about people who have decided now that what I used to live for, I don't live that way any longer. It's no longer important to me because I live now for Jesus. While that's going on, we just invite you. Have you met him? He's here. Have you met him? If you've met him, then rejoice in him and say, it's so great that I know you. If you haven't met him, today's the day, and it's so simple to meet him. How do you meet anybody? You walk up and you say, Daryl, it's great to meet you, man. I've been hearing lots about you. You walk right up to Jesus. You do it in prayer. Jesus, I've heard so much about you. I want to know you. There it is. That's how it's done. It's not hard. The altars will be open this morning if you want to come and kneel there. Plus, we also have communion elements that are available. You don't have to receive communion. That's all right. If you are a first-time visitor, understand that you can take communion. That's between you and the Lord. Some people in our sailor time just want to sit and pray and think. Some people want to come to the altars. Some want to come and receive the elements. That'll be up to you. But we're going to close with this one final thing. What is the evidence in your life? that you've met him. If there's no evidence, maybe you haven't met him yet. He wants to meet you. Today would be great. For those who are going to help us serve communion, would you come forward? And in the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat. In the same way after supper, he took the cup and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to his disciples and said, this cup is the new covenant. My blood shed for forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. For as often as you do eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you remember the Lord's death till he come again. And you remember his resurrection as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. You've given us so much evidence. We have to decide what to do about it, but Father, the evidence is there. And Jesus, you are alive and in this place right now. And you want to meet a lot of people. Father, give them courage to say yes to you. And Father, if they need help, give them the courage to come see us. I love to introduce you to people. Thank you, Father. Help us now look at the evidence of our lives. We want to know you. 
be changed by you, to live for you, to be a walking testimony to the fact that you are alive. Thank you, Lord.